Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Kelly Bach, one of your student producers, and in today's episode, we will be discussing all of the latest on sudden infant death syndrome. We are extremely lucky to be joined today by Dr. Rachel Moon, an internationally recognized expert in SIDS and postnatal mortality. Dr. Moon serves as the Division Head of General Pediatrics at the University of Virginia and is the Harrison Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics. Dr. Moon completed her pediatrics residency at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia before working as a faculty member for two decades at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. and joining UVA in 2015. Dr. Moon is the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force on Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Her research focuses on high-risk populations for SIDS and other sleep-related infant deaths, and her interests include understanding parent decision-making in infant care and evaluating messaging strategies that can positively impact those decisions. We are lucky to be hearing from such a leader in the field. As always, our host today is Dr. Bob Belfer of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Over to you, Dr. Belfer. Thank you, Kelly, and welcome to all of our podcast groupies. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been listening to our other seven or eight episodes, we now number in the thousands. Thank you again for joining us, and please feel free to share the link of the podcast with your colleagues. We try to bring our audience experts on these podcasts, and it is without a doubt that Dr. Rachel Moon is the expert on the topic of SIDS. Dozens and dozens of recent publications and all the accolades that Kelly just talked about. So, Rachel, welcome to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. I want to give our listeners a little bit of the behind the scenes that goes on with this podcast. The group that consists of our six medical students, Jill Posner and myself, we come up with the topics. Then we try to find excellent speakers like yourself, Rachel. Then we go behind the scenes. And I take that topic, that speaker, and the ideas that we want to discuss with our speaker, and I run it by our senior medical advisor. And I've asked one of our senior medical advisors, Dr. Steve Ludwig, to join us tonight to introduce a little bit about the impact that the topic we're going to talk about today, sudden infant death syndrome, has on the caregivers and the families of uh, those infants who have sudden infant death syndrome. So Steve, I don't think you need any more introduction. I am sure most, if not all of our listeners know who Steve Ludwig is. So without further ado, Steve, why don't you introduce the topic of SIDS to our listening audience? Bob, you always ask each of the people you interview about what is their favorite diagnosis. In this case, when we're talking about sudden infant death syndrome, it's actually my least favorite diagnosis. And it's my least favorite diagnosis for two reasons. First and foremost, the impact on the child and the family. And secondly, the impact that this diagnosis has on the care providers. For the child and family, of course, their interests are primary. But you can imagine that this mother and father have gone through a pregnancy, a labor, delivery, and delivered what appears to be a perfectly healthy and normal child. They've taken that child home, gone through the first few weeks of sleepless nights, becoming adjusted to caring for this baby. And their family members now all know that there is a new son or daughter. There perhaps is a religious ceremony, a christening or a naming ceremony. 
and the family finally after the first six weeks or eight weeks has become adjusted to the life of new parents when suddenly often in the middle of the night something happens and this baby dies um, is taken to the hospital resuscitation is attempted but inevitably it fails and so all the hopes and dreams of this family have now been lost and their thoughts about what their child is or will be what the future of the child will be has been lost and can't imagine a more terrible or desperate situation so the impact for the family is devastating there's also an impact for the caregivers because for us often this child who looks perfectly normal and has been acting perfectly normal has a sudden event comes to our er and despite our best efforts we're unable to perform a resuscitation in the united states we use the word resuscitation in many places around the world in europe they use the word reanimation which i think is a more appropriate term because reanimation means bringing back to life and this is a baby who has died and what we're trying to do is to reanimate to bring it back to life but as i mentioned most often those attempts are unsuccessful and that leaves us as caregivers feeling very inept inadequate and having to face this family uh, to tell them about the loss of their newborn infant i often describe to uh, learners trainees that these are like little doses of radiation each one that you deal with you can deal with successfully hopefully with the support of others but over time the radiation dosage doesn't go away but piles up so after dealing with many of these SIDS situations it takes its toll on the care providers as well so SIDS, a tragic diagnosis, a difficult diagnosis. I'm sure in the ensuing time on this podcast, we'll learn much more about it. Thank you, Steve, for those personal and touching words. And what an intro uh, to this topic. Another sort of usual format that we have, as Steve alluded to, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of the disease. And the history of sudden infant death syndrome goes back a long way. The Old Testament of the Bible, Kings chapter 3, verse 19. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. Since that reference in the Old Testament, there have been multiple other references of overlaying, smothering, suffocation. And that's because in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, it was common practice for the infants to sleep in the same bed as the mother. One other anecdote, in the 17th and 18th century in Florence, Italy, there were wooden or iron arcutios used. Rachel, what is an arcutio? Did it work back in the 17th and 18th century in Italy and other parts of Europe? Um, well, I, I don't know if it worked. Um, what an arcutio is, it's, it's a um, usually wooden, sometimes metal frame that goes around um, basically a, a, a baseboard 
and um, and you put the baby in it. And the idea is that you can bring the baby into the bed with you and there's no chance that, that there could be an overlay um, accident or death that way. Um, and, um, and they're very similar to, to some of the products that we're, that we see now, actually, but, um, I'm impressed that you know about those devices. Well, you've been doing research on this, Rachel, for decades. I did about a week or two research and, and ran the ideas by Steve. So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, a little bit more about history. Cribs became common use in the early 20th century. And then I want to move to some relative recent history. And actually, this is a case that I believe Steve was involved in or quoted in, in Philadelphia Magazine. And that involves Maria No and the book Cradle of Death. Uh, as many of our listeners know or, or will know shortly, Marie lost 10 babies in the 1950s and 1960s to what was then called SIDS. Rachel, comment uh, about the Marie No story, the book Cradle of Death. Uh, and how that moved the idea of SIDS forward. Well, um, so deaths like this, there, there actually was another book that was that talked about something similar, a case similar to this case. It was called Death of the Innocence, Death of Innocence, where there was a family that lost uh, that lost several babies, and so at that point, it the feeling was that this had to be genetic, and um, and that there was something uh, something wrong with these babies. And then what happened ultimately? was it turned out that all of these babies had been suffocated and that it was not genetic at all. But because of cases like this, there was this whole idea that you could prevent these cases because um, maybe apnea played a part in the pathogenesis of, of, of these deaths. And so that actually um, started the whole boom in apnea monitors as a way to prevent these babies from dying. Right. And uh, I think that the book you're referring to, Death of Innocence, like you said, Juanita Hoyt, who lost five babies to SIDS. And there was a publication that got a lot of press in 1972 from pediatrics. And that was by Dr. Alfred Steinschneider. And as you alluded to, Rachel, he thought that sleep apnea was the cause of SIDS. Commented about how it ran in families, how there were these near miss SIDS cases. And as you mentioned, this was the advent of the home sleep monitor industry. So tell us, was Dr. Steinschneider on the right track, or was this uh, a terrible detour uh, in the information that we know about SIDS? Um, it it was a it was a pretty big detour, and um, you know, and so even now we struggle with um, families who believe that having a monitor at home is going to keep something terrible from happening to their baby. And so I think it did put us on a track that, that kept us from understanding what was really happening for longer than, than need be. So um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Great. And then uh, I just want to talk about SIDS became an entity or a named entity in 1969 at the Second International Conference on the Causes of Sudden Death in Infancy where Dr. Bruce Beckwith defined it. But let's just take a step back. That's SIDS. And SIDS is really a subset of what you describe in many of your publications of sudden unexpected infant death. So explain to our listeners some of the definitions with SUID, sudden unexplained infant death, SIDS, crib death was a common name that was used in the past, and then something called ASSB, accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed. Give us an idea of the of how all those different mnemonics 
or definitions fit in? So SIDS is kind of the traditional term. Um, Some people called it crib death because it usually happened in cribs. And that's become a little bit unfortunate because we know that the crib is actually the safest place for the baby, but there are still parents or grandparents who have heard the term crib death and so don't want to put their baby in the crib. SIDS was defined because there were all these babies that were dying and they didn't know why. And they and so they convened this conference and they came up with um, a definition for this. And so this was an unexpected death that was unexplained after a, a complete autopsy, a death scene investigation and a review of the clinical history. And so that kind of became the term for all of these deaths. Um, More recently, what has happened is that the CDC has led the charge to do better death scene investigations and to have protocols for death scene investigations and to train people how to do these when a baby dies suddenly and unexpectedly. And what we found is that um, that there there are several several things, several categories of these deaths. Some are, are true accidents. Um, and, and that is often what uh, is called accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed, or ASSB. Those are the asphyxial deaths that are clearly asphyxia. Then there are these um, ill-defined and undetermined deaths, which are deaths where the pathologist or the coroner or the medical examiner is not quite sure of what happened and is uncomfortable calling it an ASSB death, but is also uncomfortable calling it a SIDS death. And then a SIDS death is considered something that is a, um, a diagnosis of exclusion. What we now know is that there is a lot of overlap to these. And what we think is happening is that for most of these babies, there is a physiologic component, that there's something going on probably in the brainstem. There's been a lot of neuro- neuropathologic studies looking at, um, at these babies and looking at neurotransmitters, um, particularly serotonin seems to be a, an important one. And so we have now moved towards the sudden and unexpected infant death category, and then SIDS and the accidental suffocation or the asphyxia deaths and the ill-defined and undetermined deaths all kind of come under that umbrella right now. The other thing that I want to say is that generally, um, the vast majority of these babies do die in an what we consider an unsafe sleep environment, that there's something in the sleep environment that we don't want there. And so it probably, um, the best that we can tell is that there's probably some physiologic component, some uh, failure of arousal combined with an asphyxiating environment. Great. And we're going to talk a lot more about that because I know there's numerous articles that you have written. Let me just go back, Rachel, ask you a very simple question. You talked about overlying suffocation versus SIDS. Pathologically, can you be absolutely sure it's one or the other? Because again, it's one thing to tell a parent they suffocated their child. It's another thing to tell them, as Steve alluded to, that they died from sudden infant death syndrome. So is it as black and white as I'm stating it? Uh, I know there are numerous, numerous articles written about this. Some of those sort of go over my head, just very difficult to interpret. So give us sort of the, the, the expert's opinion. Can you differentiate pathologically between suffocation versus a SIDS death? Yeah, Bob, that's a really important question. And the answer to that is generally no. You cannot pathologically, uh, on autopsy, um, distinguish between those deaths. And so a lot of it depends upon the death scene investigation, um, frankly. And um, 
Yeah. I mean, if, if there's something like, you know, so for instance, if a baby were to fall between the bed and the wall, and if there was a clear demarcation, a pressure mark on the baby's chest, then that would be a clear indication that, that this baby had suffocated. But most of the time, there is nothing. Okay, Rachel. Let's, uh, let's shift to sort of the ages of a SIDS death. Okay. I believe the majority occur less than six months of age. Actually, I think you write and give ample evidence to show that it's very rare in the first month of life. So tell us, how many cases do we see now of SIDS? And uh, give us a, a little bit of ideas of the age group of those infants. In the U.S., we usually see, um, every year we see generally about 3,600 to 3,700 deaths. And 90% of those babies are six months and younger. The peak time is about one to four months of age. Few babies die uh, before one month of age, but that number seems to be increasing over the past few years. So, um, but it's still probably under 10%. Okay. And we're going to talk about the breakdown from as far as racial and ethnic, but there are disparities in sudden infant death syndrome. It has uh, increased numbers in non-Hispanic Black and American Indians. We're going to talk a lot about preventing SIDS, which I think should be the focus of this, but why are there these disparities, both racial and ethnic disparities? Um, that is a, another really good question, Bob. Um, and it's not something that we totally understand. Um, there's certainly physiologic differences. You know, for instance, people who self-identify as being Black, they metabolize nicotine differently than people who self-identify as being white. And so, and we know that nicotine is a huge risk factor for these babies. And so, you know, that may be, that may play a part in, in it. Um, there may be differences in the neuropathology, but we, we don't really know. We do know that there are also cultural differences in terms of behaviors. And that, and that since that's something that we can try to intervene on and that we can have a public health message about, um, that's where we generally focus our efforts. Great, great. One thing we do know, Rachel, is that at least for a hundred years, there was speculation that sudden infant death syndrome might be related to sleeping position. Talk to us about 1994, the introduction of the back to sleep, or what now is called the safe to sleep campaign. First of all, why did it take so long if we knew that sleep position may be a risk factor? Why did it take till the early 1990s for the back to sleep campaign to kick off? You're absolutely right, Bob. So um, the studies that showed that back sleeping was a factor uh, epidemiologically generally came out in the 1970s and 1980s, largely in Europe, in Australia, and in New Zealand. And there really were not many U.S. studies that looked at sleep position. And so I think that there was a reluctance on the part of U.S. researchers to, to make such a what they thought was such a drastic change in recommendations for infant care um, without any U.S.-based evidence. So the NIH convened um, a panel of experts, and they argued about this and discussed this, and, um, and they decided that they would um, recommend that babies not be put on their stomachs to sleep. And so the AAP first recommended this in 1992, 
And then in 1994, the NIH started the Back to Sleep campaign, which is a public health campaign, a public education campaign. And tell us, Rachel, the impact, the quantitative impact on what Back to Sleep campaign did in reducing the number of deaths. So within five years, the the um, the rate of um, sudden unexpected de- deaths in infants decreased by about fifty percent. So it was a very dramatic reduction in the death that we that, that we had been seeing. Um, so it had a, a and 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 that was true all over the world as well. Every, any country that had a similar campaign experienced a, a, a 50% or more reduction. Most other countries uh, experienced even more of a reduction because um, they were much better at getting parents to put babies on their back than, than, um, than the U.S. has been. Great, Rachel. And after this initial markedly decrease in the number of deaths, uh, over the last decade or so, can you comment, have we continued to see decreasing number of SIDS deaths or have we become stagnant? Um, actually, there has not been a change in the overall sudden unexpected infant death rate since about 1998 or 1999. So since the turn of the century, more than 20 years, we've been pretty much um, black. All right, let's use that, Rachel, as a segue to how we can move the needle. In other words, how we can further decrease the number of SIDS deaths. And one thing we see, uh, at least I see professionally working with nurses and doctors, many of them have young children. uh, And the first thing they talk about is, how's your baby sleeping through the night? They finally slept six hours. They slept four hours. They slept five hours. And you talk about one of the major protective physiologic responses is the ability to arouse. So should mothers and fathers be talking about how short intervals the babies are sleeping or how long intervals the babies are sleeping? Well, um, I'm a big proponent of trying to change what is meant when we say, is your baby a good sleeper? Because most people talk about good sleeping as, um, as just what you're saying, Bob. So a baby who sleeps six hours at a time, eight hours at a time. Honestly, if I have a one-month-old who's sleeping six or eight hours at a time, that to me is not a good sleeper. That is a scary sleeper because that baby is not waking up enough to feed. Um, and is and 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 that baby is telling me that they, for whatever reason, are having trouble waking themselves up, which is a normal physiologic response for babies. So I would prefer to define a good sleeper as a baby who wakes up frequently to feed um, and then can go back to sleep on their own and can self-soothe themselves. To me, that is a better characterization of what I would like to see in terms of how babies sleep. And that's how I would define a good sleeper. And can parents be trained to do that? Well, it's interesting because in the U.S., we, are, we have uh, some of the lowest back sleeping rates of any developed country. No other country, developed country, has had a problem with this. In Australia, in Europe, you know, more than 90, 95% of babies are sleeping on their back. In the U.S., we have a lot of trouble with this because there's so much value in the baby sleeping through the night. I think some of it is um, is cultural. I think some of it is societal. Um, we do not have the kind of societal supports 
that other country, other developed or even not that developed countries have. Um, you know, the parent becomes most desperate to get a lot of sleep. And so they're, they want their baby to sleep when the parents are going back to work. And it's a little bit, it's almost criminal, the, the fact that we have no paid parental leave in the U.S. You know, when I presented back before the pandemic, I was presenting in, um, in Norway, um, and somebody asked about um, maternity leave in the U.S., and I told them, and everyone was shocked. They had no idea, because in, in the European countries, it's six to 12 months, no questions asked. And here you're lucky if you can get six weeks or three months. And and I think that that has had a terrible toll on on our families and, and, and the expectations that they have for babies to do things that are not physiologically, but physiologically beneficial to them. Wow, that, that is fascinating. And I guess, like you said, uh, the United States does have some growth opportunities uh, in that area. In the ER, Rachel, we practice ABC medicine, airway, breathing, circulation. And there is an ABC for safe sleep. Uh, alone, A, B, back, C, crib. The SIDS theory, okay, currently favored by you, I believe, and many other SIDS researchers, is the triple risk model. Tell us a little bit about the triple risk model theory. So the triple risk model, this is a little bit like what I was talking about before about the asphyxiating environment and the and the failure to arouse. So what the triple risk model says is that you have a baby who has some kind of intrinsic risk factor. And we can't tell just by looking at the baby or examining the baby what that is, but it probably has to do with a failure of arousal. Somewhere, some at some point, that baby's gonna have trouble arousing. And you have that baby that goes through a critical time in development. And as I said before, one to four months seems to be that period of time. And then you expose that baby to some kind of external stressor, probably some kind of an asphyxiating environment. So putting the baby on their stomach, putting the baby you know, with soft bedding, things like that. And so you have confluence of these risk factors and it's a perfect storm and then the baby dies. Okay, let, let's talk about one of those risk factors, prone sleeping. Very common scenario, Rachel, baby has terrible reflux, okay? They elevate the head of the bed, and they say they either sleep better on the side or prone. Your comments regarding a child with reflux and how they should sleep in a crib. So what I'd like to say, Bob, is that every single parent out there wants their baby to be safe, and they want their baby to be happy. And People worry a lot about reflux because they think it is abnormal and they think that that is dangerous for the baby. What we don't do a good enough job of, I think, and what parents don't understand is that there's a difference between reflux and reflux disease. And most parents think that reflux is a special category and so their baby is an exception to the rule. But when you explain to parents that reflux is actually spitting up, then that that isn't all that special because almost every baby does that. Um, so that's not an exception to the rule. And and we know that babies who are neurologically normal all have gag reflexes, and that gag reflux is there to protect the airway. So the way that I explain this to the parents is that 
parents often perceive that the baby is choking when the baby is actually not choking, the baby is gagging. And so the baby is actually purposefully trying not to choke, but they are interpreting that as choking. And, um, and so I think that's the first thing that we have to explain to parents, that that's not scary. The second thing that I found really helpful is to show them a picture of the anatomy of the baby's um, airway uh, or the neck. Um, and um, for all of you pediatricians out there, you may remember when you had to go to the delivery room and, um, and intubate babies. And you'll remember that when, you know, so you'll remember that when you lift up with the laryngoscope, that you have to wait until the, the, um, the trachea falls down because otherwise you're going to take that laryngus or take the ET tube and put it right into the esophagus. So when the baby is lying on their back, the trachea is actually on top of the esophagus. And so physiologically, it is harder for the baby to aspirate if they are on their back than if they're on their stomach or on their side. And so I actually carry a little picture of the anatomy in my pocket, and I've given one to anybody who'll take one. And that actually is a light bulb moment for parents. Great. That, that's awesome advice. And again, very simple advice, simple anatomy. Another uh, interesting, or I would call it controversial topic, Rachel, is the term co-sleeping. Okay. And I know that term has sort of fallen out of favor. Uh, I think you you defined it in some of your publications as either room sharing or bed sharing. Many women breastfeed in the first few months of life, and obviously we know breastfeeding decreases the risk of SIDS, and it's easy uh, many times for the infant to be near the mother. So talk about room sharing versus bed sharing and how that impacts sudden infant death syndrome rates. So- this is a question that we get a lot, obviously, um, and you're absolutely right, Bob. We want to we want to promote breastfeeding as much as we can, and we do know that babies who bed share do breastfeed for longer periods of time. But we don't know what is the chicken and what is the egg. So, are they breastfeeding more because they're bed sharing, or are they bed sharing because they're breastfeeding? And nobody has ever been able to figure that out because it's hard to do a randomized controlled trial to uh, breastfeeding babies and see to see what happens in terms of the bed sharing because most parents have already decided what they're going to do. So, um, so in terms, it's pretty clear, it's very clear actually that room sharing is protective, and it probably is because of this whole arousal thing. So if you ever had a baby, um, you will remember that if you slept in the room with them, that every time the baby made a sound, you would wake up a little bit. And every time you moved or made a sound, the baby would wake up a little bit. And it turns out that those little awakenings, which are not full awakenings, so you don't fully wake up, um, you just kind of turn around and go back to sleep, are probably protective for this baby. And those little noises are protective for the baby. We also know that bed sharing can be very dangerous for these babies. Most of the mattresses that parents sleep on are not the firm, hard mattresses that we want the babies on. You know, now we we have a lot of memory foam and these sleep mattresses that have adjustable firmness and softness, which is just not what you want for the baby. And there are pillows and blankets and all sorts of things there. So what we recommend is that we put th that, um, but we also do understand that you want to make it easy for the, the parent to be able to bed share or to breastfeed. Um, and we also 
understand that parents want to be able to monitor their babies. And that's a very, very important thing for them. So what we recommend is to put the crib or the bassinet right next to the bed so that you can just kind of roll over, pick up the baby, bring the baby in to feed. And then when you're finished feeding, just roll over and put the baby back in in their own sleep space. We think that that is the safest and that parents can do that. And that can be very convenient for them in terms of monitoring the baby and feeding the baby. Great, Rachel. You mentioned the bassinet or the bed. Uh, Obviously, firm mattress, bumper pads, covers, pillows. Should anything else be uh, in the crib? I want just the baby in the crib. I don't want anything else. There's nothing else that you need for the baby. If you're worried that the baby's going to get cold, then you can put layers on the baby, layers of clothing on the baby. Um, We really like the sleeping sacks, the the sleepwear, the wearable blankets, things like that. Um, I don't like the soft bedding um, in the bed. Um, And actually, there was a study that just came out, I think last month, from the CDC that showed that of the babies that died and, and it was attributed to asphyxia, soft bedding was, um, was a factor in 60% of those deaths. So soft bedding is a huge risk factor for babies. And, and it seems to be the older babies that, so bed sharing is the, the biggest risk factor for the younger babies. And then as the babies get a little bit older, it's actually soft bedding because um, the babies, they roll and they roll into the soft bedding and then they can't roll back out. So Rachel, speaking of rolling, I guess babies start to roll three, four, five, six months of age. Should a mother or father who's a little bit anxious, each time the baby rolls, do they need to quickly put the baby back on their back? I say that it depends upon the baby. So if this baby rolls over and has never rolled over before, and you know that that baby probably doesn't remember how to do it the next time, that baby I would I would probably put back on the back. If the baby is comfortable, is a comfortable roller um, and can roll back and forth and, um, and there's nothing else around the baby, no bedding, no bumper pads, nothing like that, I think that it's fine. I would start the baby out on their back and then if the baby um, chooses to roll over and, um, and ends up on the side or on the stomach, then that's fine. Great. Uh, you mentioned, again, an empty bassinet or an empty crib. Pacifiers. Many parents want their child to breastfeed, and they feel that the use of the pacifier may decrease the child's ability to breastfeed. But many of the studies that you have authored with your colleagues show that pacifier use is protective. Yes. So pacifiers is another one of those controversial things. It's not quite as controversial as bed sharing, but it is controversial. And you're right that, that people are worried that, it, that the baby will get nipple confusion and that if they are given the pacifier that um, there will be less breastfeeding or shorter duration of breastfeeding. Um, the really good randomized controlled trials that have been done with, in terms of pacifier use in mothers who are motivated to breastfeed um, have shown no difference. But to be on the safe side, we just recommend that if you are breastfeeding your baby, that you wait until breastfeeding has become comfortable for you so that your milk supply is in, you and the baby are both comfortable with breastfeeding and the baby is gaining good weight before you start the pacifier. If you are not directly breastfeeding, if you're either formula feeding or only giving your baby express breast milk, then you can start the pacifier immediately. Okay. And if a baby doesn't, some babies don't take pacifiers or not offered pacifiers, yet they do suck their fingers. 
Is that protective or as protective as pacifiers may be? Um, you know, none of the studies have shown, there, there have only been a couple of studies that have looked at digit sucking, um, and none of them have shown protection from digit sucking in terms of um, SIDS protection. But if the baby doesn't want the pacifier, it's not something that I would force on them. You could wait a little bit, you know, wait a week or two and see if they'll take it at that point. But that's not something that I would stress out too much about. Great. So Rachel, you emphasize babies should be sleeping on a fur mattress on their back. But in the course of a 24-hour day, a lot of times babies are in car seats, are in rockers, or in strollers. And I know you recently published a series of SIDS deaths occurring outside the bassinet or crib. So talk to us about what parents should do. Is it an increased risk if they fall asleep in a car seat, in a rocker, or in a swing? So the probably the most dangerous place for a baby to fall asleep is on a sofa or a couch or on a cushioned um, chair. The odds ratios for, for babies who sleep on those surfaces are extraordinarily high. So I would definitely avoid those places. That's why we say that if you are worried that you're going to fall asleep with the baby, the worst place for you to be is on a sofa or a couch or a, or a cushioned armchair. So then then talking about the car seats and the rockers and the incli inclined um, sleep devices, there's a biomechanical study that came out in the past couple of years that showed that babies who are at more than a 10 degree angle from the horizontal have a harder time maintaining that position and maintaining their airway in a straight position. So they fatigue much faster and they just can't maintain their head in a straight position so that their neck is straight. Because you have to remember that, you know, the baby doesn't have a whole lot of muscular strength yet in the head and neck area. And they also have this really big head that they have to hold up. And so, so they fatigue faster if they're more than 10 degrees above horizontal. So that's probably why those places put babies at increased risk. So if the baby falls asleep while you're traveling, don't worry about it. But then as soon as you get to where you can take the baby out, I would prefer that the baby then be put on, the, on a flat surface. Great. Excellent advice for all parents and parents-to-be. Rachel, I saved the best for last. Okay. Uh -oh. <laughs> I, I remember back when my firstborn was born over 30 years ago. And my mom, who is a teacher, uh, not in the healthcare field, said, why don't you get a baby monitor? This way you could know when the baby wakes up, things like that. And I said, mom, you know, we don't do that. Uh, the baby's doing fine. And he did fine. But now there are many products on the market now. I want to talk, I don't want to single any of them out, but I'm going to. Uh, the Owlet Smart Sock. You can measure, this is a sock placed around the baby's ankle. You could measure the baby's oxygen, their pulse ox reading. You can measure their heart rate, comes with a base station, color-coded base station that you could put uh, in your bedroom, has a camera on the baby, and you could connect this smart sock to an app on your phone. Okay, many parents, they just want peace of mind. They want reassurance. You say what? So I'm all for peace of mind, um, and I'm all for having parents who are not freaking out all the time. What I do worry about is that peace of mind leads to complacency. And so if you have a monitor on, then that means that it's okay to put the baby on the stomach or it's okay to, you know, put the baby, um, you know, on the sofa 
or it's okay to, to do these things that normally you wouldn't do. And so that's where I worry. I don't have a problem with the monitors in and of themselves. You have to remember that the monitors, they're not medical devices, and they are approved as, I think they're called lifestyle devices. So they're like Fitbits. Okay, so it's the same technology as like a Fitbit or something like that. So it's not meant to save your baby's life. And it's not, it's, that's not how it has been licensed. So we know that these monitors are not as good as hospital grade monitors. They're not as accurate. And so what I tell parents is, is, is that, you know, there's no, there's no contraindication to using the monitors. And if that gives you peace of mind or, or that, you know, you can hear the baby if they're in a separate room or something like that, I think that's fine. But you still, that doesn't mean that you can't, you don't have to follow the safe sleep guidelines. Great, great. And let's sort of close on one uh, one issue. You talked about the ability to arouse. Yet there is a recent product on the market, the Snoo Bed or Snoo Bassinet from a company, The Happiest Baby, retails for about $1,500, comes with speakers that give white noise to the baby. When the bassinet notes that the baby's moving, it will rock the baby, comes with clip-in wings, Wi-Fi. As a parent, sounds like I can get a few extra hours of sleep if my baby's sleeping in the snoo bed. Your thoughts? Um, you know, I mean, in terms of having a firm mattress and being flat and things like that, you know, I don't have a problem with it. It is incredibly expensive and it doesn't work for all babies. Um, we actually had a conversation in clinic the other day and people were talking about, they were asking about the snoo. And, you know, one resident, you know, one resident said, well, this resident swears by it. And then another resident said, oh, that didn't work at all. So, so it is a huge investment. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with the noise and, you know, the, the white noise and the moving of the baby and things like that. I do worry that it will have the baby sleep longer than they should, and that that could be a problem for things like feeding. Remember that you know breastfed babies they need to feed every two to three hours, and so you could have problems with inadequate weight gain or or things like that. So I I think that we have to be careful what we wish for. Great, and I was a little perplexed uh, in reading about this uh, bassinet, this new bassinet that uh, the device has been accepted into the FDA Breakthrough Devices Program. So help, help us out. Th does that mean it is a device that could decrease SIDS, or is that what they're looking for from the FDA? Um, that's a great question, um, Bob. And that's something, I know that that's something that the, the company has been touting a lot, um, that, this, that they've been accepted into this FDA Breakthrough Devices Program. Um, and so we actually contacted the FDA to ask them what that meant. And so I'm just going to read what they sent me. So the SNOO device has a breakthrough device designation, but that does not mean that it, ha it has been deemed safe or effective or that it can be marketed for this medical purpose to reduce SIDS. Um, it is, however, currently marketed as a consumer product meaning a product that does not have a medical purpose. So that's basically it. It just means that any FDA pre-market review will be conducted as described in the breakthrough device guidance. And to grant a breakthrough device designation, the FDA only assesses 
whether there is a reasonable expectation that a device could provide for a more effective treatment or diagnosis relative to what's happening right now. So the FDA has approved it to go through this process, but that doesn't mean that it has been shown or proven to reduce the incidence of SIDS. Great, Rachel. We'll keep our eyes and ears open uh, for some of the results from the FDA. Uh, In the last minute or two, Rachel, in the category sudden unexpected infant death, you said that SIDS deaths account for the majority of them. What are the other diagnoses that are made either in the ER, in the uh, post-mortem, in the death scene investigation? What is the differential diagnosis of a sudden unexpected infant death? So the the differential diagnosis is huge. So, you know, we think about sepsis, we think about metabolic disease, we think about uh, cardiac disease, so an arrhythmia, um, prolonged QT syndrome. Um, We think about, unfortunately, we have to think about um, child abuse. Um, So a non-accidental trauma or a non-accidental suffocation. Those are the biggest things that we, um, the, the biggest things on the differential, I think. Great. And I know uh, at CHOP, we have a a number of pathways, and we do have a pathway for the infant or or child who dies in the ED. What studies should be done in the ED when you're not sure if it's a SIDS death or some alternative? Skeletal surveys, tox screens, blood work, what would you recommend as the minimum uh, evaluation? Um, Yes. So most of these are going to be done um, uh, by the medical examiner's office. So they will do a a full CBC. They will do cultures, um, surface cultures, uh, blood cultures, um, and um, and then they will also do um, toxicology. They will do metabolic panels. Um, They will also generally repeat the newborn screen um, for for other um, metabolic diseases. Uh, That that covers most of it, I think. Great. Thank you, Rachel. And again, I would refer our listeners to the CHOP pathway. It is entitled End of Life Care, and it talks about collaborating with the medical examiner, what studies uh, jointly uh, need to be obtained in these cases of sudden unexpected infant death. Tell us some of the research that you're currently working on or your future research plans in the realm of sudden infant death syndrome. Um, Well, right now what we're doing is we are trying to understand how to change people's attitudes and change the behavioral norms that they're all used to. And so we actually are trying to do this through messaging, frequent messaging, through videos and through text messaging. And then actually last week, we just found out that we got a grant to create Facebook groups of mothers to create social, you know, online social networks for them. And in these networks, they're going to be receiving education. So they're going to be randomized to receive education about breastfeeding or about safe sleep. Um, we have a group that's going to be receiving both because we think that it's important to, to understand what messages resonate with parents who want to do both, safe sleep and breastfeeding. And then we're going to have a control group. So, um, so we're doing a lot of work um, with regards to understanding who the other people are that influence parents and how do we become bigger influences in parents' decision-making. Great, Rachel. Thank you so much. And I think all those initiatives uh, are, f- are in hopes of decreasing the number of cases that Steve talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Because once those patients come in the ER, 
there's not really much we can do. So all the preventive things, the educational uh, pursuits that you and your task force and colleagues are working on are much appreciated by us in the ED, because as Steve mentioned, that's the last diagnosis we want to see in the ED. So Rachel, on behalf of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast team, I want to thank you and of course, Steve, for your introductory comments. Uh, thank you very much. Take care now. Thank you. Bye-bye.